0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Hi, nice to meet you. Welcome, welcome one and all. Um, I'm Helena Colenda. I direct the Asia program here at the Henry Luce Foundation. And, uh, Uh, have a long-standing friendship with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and are always delighted to host uh, programs. I'm especially pleased to uh, have uh, uh, Lin Jiang here, uh, not only because of the fabulous work he's doing, but because he and my stepmom are in Berkeley, so <laughs> 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 <The real connection. laughs>
1: uh, that's how we first got to know each other. And, uh, you
0: know, this, uh, this came later, but uh, in any case, I'm going to turn the program over to Dan Murphy. But or uh, are uh, glad everyone is here, and we really look forward to your
2: remarks. You. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Dan Murphy. Director of Special Initiatives at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and certainly want to start by thanking Helena and Li Ling and our other old friends at the Luce Foundation for so graciously hosting us in this uh, very nice conference room. Uh, We really appreciate that. This evening's program is on the Energy Foundation, which does work with sustainable urban development, transport, issues and energy issues in China and I can tell you all you're in for a real treat in speaking with Jiang Lin, the Energy Foundation's Senior Vice President. I've actually taken two groups from our Public Intellectuals program to meet with Jiang Lin. Uh, our Public Intellectuals program seeks to better connect American scholars of China with policymakers and the public and when we were in San Francisco we visited the Energy Foundation's office and they both came away raving about the meeting so I'm sure that uh, you all find it equally uh, substantive and, and uh, engaging tonight. And I think the unique thing, perhaps, about Jonglin Lin and the Energy Foundation is not only is Jonglin Lin very knowledgeable about sustainable urban development, transport issues, energy, et cetera, but his organization is also engaged in a wide range of local and national partnerships. So he has both that knowledge and that practitioner's eye so a lot of very uh, valuable lessons there to be shared. And with that, I think Linjiang, you were gonna speak for perhaps 25 minutes or so, and then we were gonna open things
1: to a question and answer session. So I'll just turn it right over to you. Well, thank you, Dan. I wanna thank Helena and Luce Foundation and National Committee for organizing today's event. I'm really pleased to have the chance to share some of our work um, we've done in China uh, with you tonight. Um, just a brief introduction about Energy Foundation, which is a now a public foundation. But it was set up 22 years ago in the US by leading foundations to help the US develop a comprehensive national energy policy. Um, around 1998, we were supported by the Packer Family Foundation to launch a similar program called China, China System of Energy Program in China. It become, became operational in 1999. So, We have now been in China for 14, 15 years. We are one of the first international groups that's having established an operation in China. Today, we are the handful of international NGO foundation that's formally registered and recognized by the Chinese government, which, for all the people who work in the NGO field, understand the challenge uh, that could be. Uh, So we do broadly uh, speaking in several major energy using sectors in terms of policy work. We deal with buildings, transportation, industry, utility, renewables, um, uh, climate programs. And today I'll talk about one one of our programs in terms of urban design, urban transformation. Uh, We also have a very strong program now uh, in our quality issues which is somewhat related to our city's work as well. For those of you who are following events in China, you will know that's becoming a major issue in China in the last two or three years. So the challenges ahead of us are very you know, familiar to, I'm sure to all of you and people who are China watchers. Uh, China today is about 50% urban uh, in the next 20 years roughly 300 to 350 million people will move from countryside to cities. Uh, that's essentially building the entire U.S. Uh, in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I give you the scale and uh, in terms of speed, the scale is probably the largest uh, human migration uh, in, in world history. And how do you do that in a, in a sustainable fashion to both preserve the culture, the heritage, and leave the minimum impact on the environment is tremendously challenging. The problem are, you know, well, very well documented. So that was the 100-kilometer you know, traffic jam occurred two or three years ago outside of Beijing. of you've probably seen that. And air pollution in the last uh, two years has really gotten to a crisis level uh, in my mind. Uh, there's much greater energy security concerns. Oil dependency in China has reached over 60% uh, by now and uh, and rising. And the land use pattern that you're seeing all over China today uh, are not very promising. This is a typical shot of what we call a super block developing China. Uh, the streets are, the block size are typically 400, 500 yards on each side. And in a typical block, they're single-use residential towers, 20 to 30 towers put together with very little amenities. So imagine you live in one of those complexes. And that's roughly about you know, 10 or 20 city block here. And oftentimes, it's surrounded by a wall. So there's no way for you to actually get out of your own complex on foot. There's no way for anybody else to walk through your neighborhood because it's being walled off. So this presents tremendous problems, both in terms of mobility, but also segregation and isolation of social life. And that's you know, slowly being I mean, spread. Excuse me, what's the purpose of those walls? Security? or Yes, security, privacy, and... Uh, and the major driver for this so there's a, there's a crime issue in china so, uh, of course there's a crime, crime issue should. but it's probably not comparable to anything we see in the u.s and so there is perceived a crime issue probably it's more more uh more important deciding those walls and uh, this is a typical shot of a street in china very wide street you know, typically because you can easily land at 747 on the street <laughs> <laughs> but if you're one pedestrian trying to cross the street is almost impossible and right? um, um, how many people been to Beijing before mm-hmm. like almost all of you are in Beijing have you ever tried a crossing time <laughs> 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 so we joke about in Beijing that you know it takes a you know uh, uh, hundred meter sprinter <laughs> to get across in one signal change and this is a kind of problem that creates it, is, it really is human unfriendly city design um, again this is a way people try to cross you know there's no and here's a traffic um, situation oftentimes uh, in cities there's very uncoordinated development so we have a taken approach to uh, you know to try to tackle this issue uh, from a variety of angles. We started this work roughly eight roughly eight years ago. In two thousand five we first brought the BRT concept to China. You know this is a South to South exchange. In, many, in South America we thought it was great. You know, we took to China in two thousand five. I'm not sure if everybody knows what BRT is sorry. Thanks Dan it's a bus rapid transit. Mm-hmm. Essentially is a running but the metro on the ground, right? You run buses like you run a metro system. So they're dedicated lanes, there's station, there's pre-boarding, there's pre-ticketing, and the bus are designed like a metro, the cars. So all for delivering the maximum of a pedestrian, maybe passenger traffic in the short of town. In, in contrast to subway, metro system costs about 5 to 10%. The reason is, was invented in South America because people were too poor to build subways metro station. They had to find other ways, and it was too poor to build freeways as well. So this is what they came up with. So we started with that, and uh, roughly about seven, six years ago, with support of the Hewley Family Foundation, we launched an entire integrated initiative called Sustainable Chinese, Sustainable Chinese Cities Initiative, and try to address both the land use planning issues, the transportation planning issues, and the building design issues all together. To us, uh, these are the fundamental structure of the city. Once they are built, it's very difficult to change. Right? So this has a high blocking potential. That's why I want to tackle them first and for- foremost. The other system, even the energy supply system, you can re- you can re- rebuild, you know, it's actually not too hard to rebuild them. But once you lay the strict grid together down, it's very difficult. You know, New York, Manhattan strict grid laid out 200 years ago, and it's, you know, thinking about changing that today. Um, so th- And we also taken the w- away that um, following our observation, how, Change happening China. China in the last thirty years has gone through enormous change. Uh, There's huge amount of um, dynamism, I think, uh, partly because people are willing to learn and adapt, they bring new idea from around the world. They try them in one place to see whether it works or not. And if it works, and then they summarize and replicate across country. So we're taking a similar approach in choosing a handful of cities we work with first to see whether this idea to work in those cities, and then try to bring on um, to, to uh, nationwide, either through national policies, incentives. Dan was asking me earlier whether there the incentives. Yes, we're going to develop some incentives uh, for, for the replication effort. But you know, first, seeing people want to see whether this great idea of work or not because many of the ideas we you'll hear about sounds very straightforward very simple why are they not done yeah, that's the critical challenge we'll talk about um, so then in the last we we have um, both learned scan around the world for the best practices but also learn from our practice in China in the last 70 years and keep up with a design philosophy we call planning city for people really turn the design approach around everything we do is focused on the people in the city. Not the cars, not the buildings. In the people, that's what we need to serve and make a livable city for people. And we came up with eight principles that in our mind roughly gets it very quickly. Um, well, I'll talk some of them in depth. But just for now, I'll just go over them uh, together. First of all, is development neighborhood and promote walking. Right? That sounds really simple, but it's really a fundamental reorientation of design focus. Those super blocks with 20, 30 towers together, you cannot walk. Right. So every trip starts with a walking. Right. So,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, the second really is prioritizing bicycle networks. We can design great subways and all that. But China, Chinese cities, or to some extent, cities in Asia, are huge metropolis. You have to be- get people on foot on bicycle. Just building buses and subways are not enough. You need to really revitalize the bicycle bicycle network. And China was the kingdom of bicycles. I think it's our hope. China become again, the kingdom of bicycles uh, in the next uh, decades or so. Uh, three, the third principle is to create a dense network of streets and passes, which really means permeability. You can actually go through a city very easily. Multiple choices uh, here. Compared to the super block approach, we want to go to a small block, smaller street. So easy to cross, easy to walk around. Um, of course, is really about supporting high-quality transit. The high-quality, the key words here, because as people become wealthier and you know, they're striving for better quality of life, you know, you just can't really pitch someone go to that crowded and air, air-conditioner bus. You know, you've got to provide a high-quality service so people will choose the transit instead of drive. And private cars are very comfortable space. Everything is conditioned for your preference. So we need to provide a high quality alternative to that, whether it's transit, whether it's a safe, comfortable riding environment for, for bicyclists. Number five is, is truly fragile mixed use. Right? This is the one fundamental to solve traffic jams. If you can truly make sure there's job housing balance, in a reasonable radius, making sure your your communities have the job opportunities, place to live, place for service, you know. And then you don't need to travel so far. A city, major city like Beijing, have one single central business district. It's a disaster for traffic management. Because every day you see people come in, they go out, you know, no matter what you do, is going to be a miserable experience. Um, the this, this, this six is match density with transit capacity, which is actually very subtle, right? and I'll talk about with some example later on. I think it would be much more easy to understand. And here's easy to, to th- think about walking neighborhood bicycle network you know, I want to just point out on this the, the, the second um, chart you notice there's both safety separation between the, the bicyclist and also the bicycle actually ahead of the cars at the traffic light crossing so when the light turns green you no, have to have a decent chance to go across <laughs> <laughs> <Right? laughs> otherwise this guy gonna cut you off <laughs> so it's a, it's a you know, so that's very minor very subtle change in design But focusing on here is a bicyclist you're trying to serve not the car drivers, right? Making sure you give them priority. In some cities people even give bicyclists you know, the green light first, you know, three seconds, five seconds, they take off first, then car can get a go. So and this is important for many of you who experienced Beijing in the past these have a wonderful Bike lanes. So what happened to them? They didn't disappear. They just take more by cars <laughs> because those bicycle lanes are too wide. <laughs> so you are too wide, car can get in. They will. And so you want to make sure that you have a separation, but also the lane need to be narrow enough so there's no way for car navigate in that space so this is kind of a very careful thought has to be put into thinking about how do you serve bicyclists right and uh, this is a, a typical street shot in, in China today you know not fancy commercial strip but with minor modification it can be become a very nice environment for bicyclists and pedestrians here's a little design change we did see before, this is after. Okay. So you're gonna have separate space for bicyclists, you have a very even space for a pedestrian to bike walk across. They don't have to go up and down anymore, and right? They go straight flat for them. So it's really some little change really helps pedestrians. Help the sort of the, the walking and biking experience. Imagine you have shade over the bike lanes, right? Mm-hmm. Shutting from the weather and sun, and then it can be very pleasant. Um, in in Kunming, in the new town, Changgong, which we had a first breakthrough um, three years ago, we're planning an entire bike lane network. So you don't never have to intersect with the cars. This is making that easy, making them safe, making them comfortable. Then, of course, you'll choose them. You're going to keep biking for longer. Um, so this is a design principle we're implementing in this uh, uh, new town. On the right, right, on the right is the old design, on the left is our new design. The so overall shapes are very similar, but you can see it's becoming much denser, a okay, much denser network of streets and blocks. And there are several advantages of that, right? It's much easier to mix, truly mixed use, when you have a, mon- a finer block the workplace. And also it's much easier to, to, to walk across. We don't have a wide boulevard here anymore. Um, and that's a major challenge. Uh, is, is, it, is it being uh, built up to that model? Uh, right now they're, uh, they're in the implementation stage. So this, in Kuoming, we have gone the furthest. Not only did the design, the design was accepted, but the city government is being translated into zoning laws. And now it's being attached to the land transaction contract. So uh, that's going to ensure you, you, know, in the inclement. Uh, Mixed-use neighborhood, this is probably very familiar to most of you. Mm-hmm. To walk the traditional neighborhood, there's real mix, right? You can get your vegetables, meat, you know, just around the, around the corner. And uh, oftentimes in today's redevelopment in cities, they're just being flattened. Right? There will be a high-rise, fancy, super expensive luxury complex built on top of that. And eliminate all the local flavor, the history, the culture, and become very affordable. Right? It's the entire gentrification model. Right? So we want to make sure your redevelopment, you want upgraded amenities, but you want to keep the local flavor and culture and history. So that's one you know, critical challenge. Um, this is, you know, as I said before, the typical pattern today: single-use apartment blocks, very wide street. Now, this is the one the subtle point about matching transit capacity with de- uh, development density. Right? And on the, on the left, I think it's a Curitiba. Um, you can see that in the middle, along the corridor, the transit corridor, are a lot of high rises. The development density is very high. You build a lot of um, both apartment buildings and commercial offices. But as you move away from the transit corridor, as you lose your transit capacity, the building becomes much lower, less developed. Because you know you can't serve them, right? And then you don't need it either. Which, this way of development gives the city really very differentiated skylines. In many cities today in China, it's flat, it's cross, you know, 30-story high or 50-story high. There's no distinguish the, uh, differentiation between different districts. It's very flat. So you want to make sure that you can develop uh, with support of transit capacity. Otherwise, you, you cause congestion. You can't move the people if they're not close enough to uh, high-capacity transit, whether it's BRT, subway, light rail. You need to, uh, all of that many of the big cities in China. Uh, on the right is Guangzhou when the BRT corridor is built. Um, so here's sort of a con- conceptual design in terms of how you want to think about it. The TOD, the transit-oriented development district and centers. Um, the red lines are metros. So when the two metro lines intersect, you know there are a lot of transit capacity and that's where you're going to build the highest density offices, commercial facilities, and residents. And when you move away from that, you know, green lines are, are the bus transit lines, and then you build less. So if you think of a city in that way, you can truly design a lot of facilities within, you know, 15 minutes the radius uh, from a major transit uh, hub. Um, so this is, again, before and after in, in Changwon. Now uh, you can see the different color represent different usage. So on the right you can see there's much better mixing of different colors. So you achieve this mixed use uh, much nicer than what's on the left. And I'll go through that. Um, here are some of the non-motorized transit work we've done, both in terms of bike lanes, and also passes. You know, in some cities, walk, pedestrian paths are incredibly important part social life, and community life, and easy you know for people to move around. In Chongqing, for example, it's very hilly. If you go around the street level, you're gonna circle around quite a bit to get anywhere. And so they have many passes. Um, those paths are very much you know alive. And they're sort of somewhat of community center in many ways, but oftentimes they're they're really not in good condition. And so we have done some work to really upgrade the facility, providing lighting, seating, and uh, some community center development around those passes to restore their vitality. And that's a very really, really fun thing to see um, in Chongqing right now. Some of you probably have seen. Even the automated walkways in Hong Kong, right? I think that's the next step to really help people to move around. Because there's a lot of older people in this neighborhood, and the hills are really steep. You got to make sure they can get on top of that pathway. So thinking about people as a, as the customer of your design service are really important to make this work. Otherwise, they're just beautiful benches to sit on. The BRT, uh, the, the best transit network uh, in, in Jinan, is becoming a model for, the, for, for Chinese cities. Uh, Jinan was interesting. You know, we succeed not entirely by design. I mean, it was one of the first cities we worked with, uh, but also because geology is in our core. You know, in Jinan, as you probably know, is called spring cities, right? The many springs underground they can't do the subway. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, all the mayors love subway metro project because they're a big ticket construction project that bring employment, tax base, other opportunity for the official in charge. Um, but in Jinan, in they couldn't really do it. So they actually stick with the BRT plan we helped them design. And they have developed beautiful um, uh, network of BRT corridors. We're in a six, seven corridor now. Uh, cover entire city so you can actually get on one network, one bus and transfer to other type of city as well. Uh, so it's becoming, during, three years ago during the national game time, that was the major transportation uh, mode to deliver all the, uh, the participants to the game. This is the Guangzhou, you've seen before in the picture, and one of our partners at the Institute for Transportation Development Policy um, helped Guangzhou redesign this part of, uh, of the BRT, uh, the bus network. And this is what you know was improved afterwards. It's dramatic improvement in terms, at least that part of it, the Guangzhou, the traffic flow really start to change. One of the nice things about BRT is if you fully implement the gold standard BRTs, you can deliver as much passenger traffic as metro station. Now, people say, oh you know, it's too simple, not fast enough, not you know, cannot deliver enough people. Not true. You can do a lot with BRT at a cost, you know, five to ten percent of metro. And the only thing against it is that you don't, you, know, you don't bring as much investment <laughs> to the city if you do the BRT, and, and initially, there's a lot of resistance from drivers, right? Both in Guangzhou and Jinan, a lot of complaint for automobile drivers. Buses are taking over the street space. Why not? You know, think about it. the street are public property. They are not set aside for automobile drivers. So you know, understand that concept. I think it's really important to think about how do you allocate public resource to serve the majority of the citizens in the city. And I think that orientation as I think is critical in thinking about using limited resource uh, in. That's the, that's the B, Jinan BRT network line. So I should stopped here probably then. And this is a concept, conceptual design for, for Kunming. And we need a few other things um, for um, for other cities as well.
2: Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lin Jian. And um, I think I'll start off by asking the first question, then we'll, we'll just open it to the floor. I wanted to know, you, you mentioned Kunming, Chongqing, Jinan, and a couple other cities. For those cities that have been most successful with these sustainable urban planning concepts, what are um, some of the common factors that allow
1: them to be successful? What common attributes do they have? Well, number one, they need a visionary mayor, a leader in the city who can embrace a different path forward these are not easy things to do. This is against the traditional development approach. It's much easier for the city to stamp approval to sell large of land to developers and get the revenue back very quickly. Much easier for developers to cookie cutter do the 20 billion. I remember you know, early on in my tenure at the foundation, we received a delegation of leading developers. You know, it one guy admitted that it took him the same amount of time to do one beat with a green building than twenty other buildings. Because other he doesn't have to think. It just right? Just chop, chop, chop and it's done. And uh, just really thinking through it, it's very hard. Uh, the second, the, the the infrastructure supporting this implementation I have an open mind, not just the mayor, you gotta have the planning bureau, transportation bureau, be open to new ideas. This is all against the traditional way of doing things. I remember the first BRT line we helped build, the build in Beijing, and there was a major resistance from the police department. Right? It's gonna Mess up their whatever traffic management system. It's not the same way. It didn't mess up the system. Just it wasn't the same way it was done before. It has to be. We brought in the mayor to break the the kind of interdepartmental, you know, negotiation on, on those issues, because oftentimes people are making significant investment in public transit that are not aligned with land-use money at all. Right? They're run by different departments. So someone need to bring them together. And the other thing is, the third part is, you really need a strong partnership between the private and public sector, particularly NGO actors, to provide the constant persistence, uh, advocacy, to make this work. Because oftentimes, if you just hire a designer, you know, it's designed beautifully, was never getting adopted. It's shelved. You know, so many people have done great designs, never seen the light of day. It's somewhere in the library.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so questions, and if people could just uh, identify themselves when they ask the question. one
3: and then two, three. My, my name's Tim Holtz. I'm with Barry Delvera. We're actually quite invested and interested in the China minerals, mining is what we focus on, energy as well. Question that I I enjoyed your presentation very much. Thank you. Question I have, in my mind, I never heard you use the word moped or motorbike. My understanding is is that uh, through policy, and I may be mistaken in all of this, um, decisions that I understood were being made, at what level of the country, I'm not quite sure, Um, mopeds and motorbikes, which kind of replace bicycles or are in concert with bicycles, are being switched over to batteries so that there's not um, emissions being generated, which is a wonderful thing for lithium and other... uh, (laughs) Minerals. (laughs) Minerals (laughs) storing energy. Um, And I was just curious, I mean, I I didn't see any even pictures of mopeds or motorbikes. Am I completely mistaken? Are they there or not? And I will admit, I've never been to China <laughs> the one person in this room um,
4: well
1: you know I'm sure people who went to China early on the 80s have seen motorcycles and you uh, but you couldn't find any survivors who rides a motorcycle <laughs> from the first batch. <laughs> it's just kidding. But uh, but I think it's it, 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 but it's the case that it's true that motorcycles are not very much used in the city anymore. Uh, it's totally banned, in fact. The countryside, yeah. Oh. most cities are banned. So or, uh, e-bike,
5: there's right, tons electric of bikes,
1: right? Let's take on the, the bikes. Gasoline powered motorcycles. Gasoline, right. right. The engine, yeah. the combustion engine. Right. Those are, right. yeah, they're all banned already. But I'm are
3: they switching? My understanding is there's 120 million being pumped out each year now to replace the gas combustion. Right. So there are a lot of e-bikes in right.
1: right. Battery powered Focus. bicycles. And that's very popular. Right. And
0: they
1: use the bus, like I mean, I'm
0: sorry,
1: the bike lanes. These bike lanes. Right we got a
2: question from the gentleman in the back of the room there, yes. Hi, uh, if you could well, I, 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 I'm Ben Warren, architect.
4: i thought i to flip the question. What do you do with, flip the first question, uh, what about the cities that haven't been the biggest successes in maintaining integrated mixed-use neighborhoods and fine networks and new bonds and things? Uh, is there any discussion about how to re-intervene in a, let's say, a a vast Beijing superblock and try to put little bits of character and humanity back into it? I think it's very challenging. And um,
1: um, there are a lot of cities who are in that sense. Um, In in some ways, the new superblock is kind of a, it's a very mutation from more contemporary block which are in fact very mixed-use centric. So you remember in old days before market reform, all the work unit provide a housing and services, right? So if you are a factory, you have your own school, your own hospital, your own markets, your own dining hall. So everything happened in that. So to speak, super <laughs> block. It's very difficult for other people to go through, but for people who live in there, it's actually fairly convenient. Right? The new mutation is single used, just residential. It's it's tough. I think it's very difficult to to retrofit on those. And uh, but it's not. You know, there are solutions. The question that people need to be open right? because the new solution are just just different than the way you used to think. And uh, Especially about the walls, right? For example. You know, crime rate in China compared to US is so much lower. But the perception wise, that wall become very central to the property owners, to their sense of belonging, community and security. So that's you know, that's a much deeper
3: barrier we need to break. Um,
4: I hate to introduce Japan into this, but having lived in Japan for several years, I mean, the Tokyo metropolitan area is still the biggest metropolitan area in the world. still bigger than Shanghai or Beijing. And yet they have an integrated bus and subway and suburban rail system. I'm wondering why this isn't a possible model for big Chinese cities, particularly in terms of supplementing the subways.
6: Suburban
1: rail, not far into city rail, but suburban rail. And no, I think it is, it is uh, applicable. I think the transportation system in Tokyo is unparalleled. Right? It's very well organized. But whether it's the best laid out city is a question. Right? So I think when, when we have a chance to really look at greenfield development, you want to think about how you create a city um, that's very livable, it's very lively, it, you know, invites social interactions. You know, it's going to create that kind of a vibrancy that cities are known for. So I think you know, that's a really real challenge. It's not, not just a design solution. I, I think it takes much greater engagement from all the stakeholders, including the civil society folks, to figure out how do you make your city work? I can't tell you. Right? Yeah.
0: Well, you just mentioned Greenfield cities, and you showed the Kunming, uh, a new new city. Um, you also showed Guangzhou, old city, um, talked about the superblocks, hard to retrofit, so I'm wondering where you're putting most of your energy. Is it in the new cities that are springing up, or is it uh, old cities or a combination?
1: Um, it's a combination, but probably more effort or in the new district or a new city, right? So, like, Kumin wasn't a new city city, but it's a new district a city. Yeah. Um, so that offers um, easier entry in some ways, and okay? with, with all district, there's even greater complexity to work through with the local people, with people who already bought the rights to the land. And it's a much more complex city policy you have to work through. With a new city, new district at least, you have a chance to lay out your grand vision. I mean, in Chongqing, we're, you know, in the spring, we had a session with local government and designers to work through some of these issues. You know, one of the, their challenges, are, wow, we sold that piece land already to someone as a commercial development. Now you are telling me there's too much job in that district. I need to flip them to a housing block. Well, that guy's going to lose a lot of money if I do that. So it's becoming very difficult negotiation with you know the entire community and how do you rezone yeah. things? Right? So that's a very typical problem right now in, this, in major cities. They design or they allocate too much space for commercial development not enough for house in terms of balance, right? So you have a just right
6: ratio between the two. Hongyang. Yeah, my name is Hongyang. I, I teach environmental sciences in China. Um, and for, for the time, do you, do you want to see uh, bicycles are being brought back to China. Uh, I think it's one thing I still remember from my childhood, I used to ride bicycles over baby in three times. Uh, but do you think that take a, a cultural solution to bring that? <laughs> so as the conventional thinking and, and planning? Um, um, I was in China uh, I a month ago and watched a popular show. Where the girl was saying a famous line. Said, she rather crying with the BMW rather than riding on a bicycle. <laughs> uh, so how do you think that that is that? Reality or a word is
1: reliable gold for yeah. a Well, you use the right word. It, it does take a cultural revolution to change people's mindset about. You know, car is such a status symbol right now in China or everywhere else in the world, right? So, but it's not irreversible, right? I spend uh, I don't know two hours a day riding bicycle in Manhattan. <laughs> so, if, if you can do it in Manhattan the most dense urban area in the US. Why can't you do in Beijing? You should read some of the editorials instead of a cultural revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's doable, but, but the, the key question is combination. You need both the cultural change, uh, but also you need to do the infrastructure development. So you have to be safe, sound, you know, comfortable. Why would you dare ride a bicycle you know, it's not safe That's the number one thing but you've got to create that infrastructure before behavioral change can take hold and take root. So that's why in some of the, our work we focus first you know on laying out the right infrastructure. We in fact you know, have engaged in partnership with the Ministry of Housing Urban Development China to have pilot program in different cities the first year six cities, the next year was another six cities. So those 12 cities finish their design guidelines on how to roll out the bike system in their city, and we're going to add to a public rental program on top of that. We may be doing rolling out to 30 to 40 cities next year. Uh, so this thing can, you know, can be re- you know brought back again. You Joe.
5: Okay, um, my name is Yu Zhou. I'm a geography professor at the Basel College and also I have urban planning background. I really love your presentation very much because uh, early this year, I'm doing a work, a research on green building so early this year I was in China visiting various planning places and so on and I find actually very discouraging and what you were saying and the principle you laid out are, you know, make perfect sense. Um, but it seems to me that how that principle penetrated in the even the planning circle and the layers, even in new development, it seems to me very difficult. Uh, I remember seeing when you say the funny city for people, I remember seeing a um, uh, presentation of future of Nanchang, you know, this new district, and, you know, beautiful skyscrapers, white street, and the only thing missing is people in it, you know, there was no people, there was like a couple holding one child and walking <laughs> on a very wide street, so, and it was, and then people who accompanied me say, oh, you see, you should see, this all over China, this is all the vision, this is the vision, there's no people in it. Under these cities, so it, it just seemed to me a really difficult thing to sort of a penetrate into people's mind. But I'm wondering, beyond your foundation's wonderful work, they are um, you know the Chinese government is promoting what's so called the eco cities, right? And there's supposedly 200 cities applying for eco city status. So. I'm wondering whether these kind of top-down government saying, you know, we need to be green, does it create that kind of? You need really a cultural revolution happen quickly for planet, at least. <laughs> so, does it? Do you think that works? Do, is are you seeing people's mind changes? Because some of the your superblock idea—I mean, non-superblock idea—when we were in Hangzhou, they—they've been criticizing the Beijing block for decades. It still doesn't prevent many cities adopt the superblock. They said it's because Beijing has Lianghui. You know, all the mayors came to Beijing and say, "Oh, big block—that's what we need. a big street—that's what we need." So. Even though for planners, professional planners, they knew this is a problem for a long time. So I'm just wondering, hmm. to what extent these are changing? Whether the Chinese government, the city push is changing it? Okay.
1: I think, I mean, you, you had a great question. It's, a, it's gonna have, take a long time. <laughs> long time. But to simply put, I think having the highest level leadership paying attention to this problem, definitely will push the system to perform better, that's clear. Uh, Second, but it's not changing fast enough, I totally agree with you. This is the fundamental challenge we face in China, because the speed of change is so fast. Can we act fast
0: enough?
1: enough people long, fast enough, to reverse the course. is going to be a huge question to be answered. And uh, we're doing our part. And uh, for example, we're, we're creating a university alliance for all the major design schools. In China, to come together to train their people. Um, you know, we have a target about a few thousand people a year to be trained under that program. We're we're working with the mayors' academy, we're training mayors as well. You know. um, but so far, I don't believe it's enough in the sense that um, people really want a powerful example to show. Right? because the concept is so simple. You know, they, they you couldn't really grapple with that. They actually really want to see a model. So we're working very hard to get the models that we built. But as you know, it takes such a long cycle, right, to do the design, then auction the land, and then build it, you know. So when we made the first breakthrough three years ago in Kwame, in terms of getting the design accepted, it just takes now to developer bot, to track the land, we're starting implementing some of that. Good. Yeah, it's, it's even then it's not 100 percent risk free yet, yet. So, um, but I think that some of what we are hoping to do is learn from the pilots and start design the national policies in terms of incentives to accelerate adoption. You know, for example, we're helping the ministry of house construction to set up an incentive fund to provide cities who are willing to build entire district with green buildings. Look at a 50 million RMB as incentive. Well, that counts, you know, 50 million is, I don't know, not quite $10 million yet, but it gets them somewhere. So there's a lot of people applying for that. If you do that, you have to follow the code, right? Entire district of the building, not just single building, has to follow the green building design guideline. So we're hoping this, as we start developing, learn from the model, we're creating on the side, technical design guidelines, for example, street design manuals, very technical, very mundane. I mean, what's the waste the city? You know, what's the waste the street you should have? How do you use that? What, some? How much for you know, bicycle lane? How much for bus lane? How much for cars? You know, there's all kind of detailed work we're doing with a whole network of you know, partners in China. You know? Today, we work with roughly 150 institutions in China Mm -hmm. on a variety of issues. So they're doing a lot of work uh, on the ground to summarize all the experience we learned. And hopefully that will be used for all the design schools uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. Did I see a hand in the back of the room? Jan?
0: Um, Jan Barris with National And I think it's quite extraordinary what you're doing. Um, And I'm just wondering, can you give us a little more sense of the practicalities of how you go about doing that?
4: What, is,
0: <laughs> what magic are you working first yeah. of? But I know you don't have a giant staff, so how much? what's your staff? I know you have an office in Beijing, you have it in other cities. Is most of your design work done here, done there in conjunction with other Beijing mm-hmm. planners or, yep. or, or individual city planners? And, so, then, how, and then just the follow-up. Mm-hmm. How do you then sell your design, sell your ideas, and how do you identify the places where you think they're likely
1: to be accepted? Mm-hmm. Both are excellent questions. Um, so the foundation itself has roughly 80, 85 staff in total between US and China. And China's staff right now is about 35 foundation staff um, that are mostly in Beijing. Um, and then we have built our own design center now. There's about uh, 13 14 engineers and planners. It's a separate, you know, kind of a local NGO we, we help set up.
0: In Beijing? In Beijing. A base, uh, Based in Beijing. Local Beijing? Or
1: exactly. <laughs> local <laughs> Beijing <laughs> registered, non-profit, corporation. <laughs> uh, that does the real time, you know, twenty four seven support the cities. So they actually being dispatched, you know, every day to different cities to do the work. And our approach is very much a partnership model. We don't do this work alone. We bring the best firm in the world. We also engage local firm as well. So it's a three party team. You know, for example, we bring Young Gal Associates, which is the best sort of a urban designer on the streetscape, bike lane kind of work in the world, you know, from Denmark. So we use their talent. Uh, we have our own team. All the engineers are trained in the US and in Europe. You know, and then go back, work for us. And then we work with the local. In each city we work, there's local designs to we engage. So there's a three-party team that's really the, you know The small piece of land you saw in Kunming to get it down to a implementation design, it takes a huge amount of manpower to actually do the drawing. You know, not just do the conceptual design, to do the construction drawing. You know, it's costing millions and millions dollars in t- in terms just to pay for the design fees. Right, the developer paying. We're not paying for that. Uh, so it means a huge amount of work. So we're we're really thinking about the partnership model, who we work with. In terms of engagement. Um, we, you know, of course, that's part of our business, understanding local dynamics. Who are the, the, the champions? Who are in line with our thinking, with our with our model? Who are, you know, be open to new ideas? So we do a lot of engagement. You know, in China, we have built a build, uh, two-layer advisory council to help dev- advise us on uh, where to go, what topic to work on. So these are very senior folks inside and outside the government who, you know, understand what is going on, what's needed in China. So we we have regular consultation with them to understand what priorities is coming up. Um, so we also, you know, there are also cases we tried, didn't quite work, we could just have to, you know, leave, you know, when kind of losses move on to the next thing. But what what you touched on is one of the fundamental challenge of, uh, of, of, uh, working in China because the speed of leadership change is so fast. No one stayed in a position very long. This is an enormous challenge. You know, since the, 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 uh, the mayor of Kuang we worked with, you know, our first champion endorsed our ideas. You know, he's the move on quite a long time ago. Even his successors moved on. The planning bureau cheap in one three times. So each time you gotta re educate, re engage, you know. So it's you know, this is not a <laughs> you know, do one work, you have to be there all the time.
3: So also
1: this
0: isn't cheap. So if you're bringing the best designers from Denmark, the, your developers are paying for that and they're willing to do it?
1: Um, we're evolving our model. Uh, some, you know, right now, a lot of the cities are paying part of it, and the developer, of course, when you're down to implementing uh, the actual building design, the developer are paying for it. Right? So the conceptual design part, oftentimes, is a partnership between us and the city. So they we cost share some of that. This is the very first part of the design, the layout, you know, the concept, and then there's a couple layer of design. But by the time it gets to land sold to developer, they want to build. Oftentimes they hire us back to do that work for them, and they pay entire costs. And they don't have to hire us. You know, that's the, you know, they, there's many people they can choose to hire you know, from the field. But because relationship you build over time, they do something we've just got
2: a couple minutes left and I saw three hands so maybe we'll just collect up those questions together and you can respond to them. John, Sarah and this gentleman in the back.
4: I was just wondering with with development in China it seems like vanity projects are kind of the the name of the game and about a year ago I suppose we were hearing a lot about Changsha's uh, The Sky City uh, housing (coughs) 174,000 people uh, it, I'm looking at your eight uh, principles here, perhaps that's, um, I don't know if it meets any of your principles. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems like a, a nightmare for a developer. So I'm am wondering, you know, is that an aberration, where that's a single developer's vanity project, is it—is that even going forward, or are we going to be seeing more and more of these single building monstrosities where you never have to go outside Sarah
0: um, Sarah Gaffer to the Environmental Grant makers Association um, you were talking about developing um, a model and I was wondering are there any um, are there any cities currently in China that serve as a relatively uh, decent model that we can look to as an example? Today, um,
1: we have a bad model. You, you
6: have know. a bad model. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Demi Miao from the United Nations. Thank you very much for your most uh, exciting presentation. I don't have a planning and uh, architecture background. I recently came to an exhibition at MoMA, which is about nine plus one ways of uh, being political, which reviewed the past, uh, you know, all the architectural designs over the past 50 years, and they identified the silent seeds. And I found that was quite uh, fascinating. So in relation to your presentation, as uh, we see China is undergoing this uh, urbanization at uh, such a rapid speed, what's your reading about some selling trend in terms of uh, uh, you know, design philosophy when it comes to larger uh, 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 urban planning and uh, residential housing projects? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the venue uh, projects and then you have this eight uh, principle yeah. but just in terms of the purely from the architectural point of view. I very much appreciate uh, your point specific point on the
3: mixed-use residential areas uh, the need to preserve you know
6: uh, the uh, the older older that kind of a uh, neighborhood while the China moves up to the the, the modern world so uh, so I just more anxious to hear your
2: views so we have got the vanity projects in the Changsha Sky city the relatively good model and the salient trends in design philosophy
1: yeah those are very uh, broad questions <laughs> um, let me just try to uh, try to wrap around my brain around them. I don't mm-hmm. know what I can provide a, a, a simple answer for that. Um, you know, oftentimes, many projects came from many ideas. Right? The, the developer didn't dream of the idea himself. He was actually architects, planners, who dream those ideas. And those actually been around for some time. So it, it just wonder. the then, when the vanity developer and vanity idea <laughs> intersect, and you have this phenomena of potential uh, aberrations, I would say, uh, in terms of thinking about uh, human living environment, which is a very much you know, this is not a specific question, answer to your question, but but thinking about the solution to the human um, cha- the challenge we human society face. Oftentimes, it's being simplified, shrinking to a technology solution. So this is the one that fits the model. We can solve your problem by giving you this building that has everything you need. Why do you ever want to go out, why don't we hook at you into a tube that feed you all the information, <laughs> all the all the sensation you're ever going to experience, and you just keep you in the bed. <laughs> so it's it really about. Really, about the human experience, right? And I think there's very fundamental philosophic differences in how do you approach um, human society. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have an answer to that or not. I think we'll see when it happens. Um, good models very hard to come by. Bad models are always there, <laughs> all the time, and is being replicated. You know, and this is one of the challenge I think for all of us. Think, through. why does bad model? spread as fire, <laughs> right? I mean, Beijing is, you know, in my mind, a world, one of the worst cities in terms of design features. But everyone wants to build like Beijing. The love Chang'an Boulevard it's big and grand, right? So, I mean, it's a real challenge. And uh, I think that's why we put this simple idea on the heading for our philosophies, we're a plain city for people. Right? You've got to shift your orientation first of all, and then the solution will come. If you get the right orientation of who you're trying to serve. Um, In terms of the the approach addressing this massive amount of organization, I think there's no simple solution to it. And and all the problems we encounter today are based, in my mind, on a very simple belief we can find a simple fixes for all the problem we have. You know, cities are extremely complex environment and systems, and it takes multiple stakeholders to get engaged to figure out what's the resolution for it. So for someone to tell you, you know, here is the blueprint and do it, is never going to work. So I think it, it requires the city to come together to take its time to think about its own future, its own history, and how to build the kind of an environment you want to live, not anybody else. Well, I hope everybody
2: will join me in thanking Lin Jiang for a very engaging <laughs> session.